The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition, our daily webcast and podcast that offers an in-depth look into investing and financial markets. My name is Jacob Passy, and I am a personal finance and real estate reporter at Market Watch. And today we have Mark Fleming, Chief Economist for First American Financial Corporation. Welcome, Mark, and thank you for being here. Hey, Jacob. Thanks for having me. So today you and I are going to talk real estate. And I know that the Consumer Price Index just came out this morning, this Friday morning. So that's going to be on a lot of uh, listener and viewers' minds. Um, so we'll get to that. But, you know, to kick things off, I wanted to, to ask uh, a, perhaps a little bit of a hot button question, something I get from readers all the time in my inbox. The question is, you know, where do you see head, home prices headed and are they going to drop next year? Well, I'll start with the latter part of that. I don't think there's any chance that uh, house prices will decline. Certainly nationally, most major metropolitan areas, you know, uh, declining prices, I don't think are even close to possible. Um, and part of the reason is because house prices at the moment are going up so quickly. I mean, year over year appreciation rates nationally at 18, 19%, and in some markets even higher than that. And, um, Will they slow down? This is sort of house prices are sort of like semi trucks. You know, when you get going at that speed and you put the brakes on, it's not like you go into reverse. It's more like you just go slower. So we do expect house price appreciation to slow down, but we don't expect house price depreciation by any stretch of the imagination. So in other words, you're not seeing a top uh, on prices or maybe a top on the market even right now. No, I mean, the, the, the challenge is that um, the supply and demand imbalance, which, you know, sort of what's going on in the economy writ large, the supply and demand imbalance in the housing market is pretty darn acute. This isn't a COVID thing. This was pre-COVID. You know, supply was low in 2019 and demand was surging because of millennials aging into home ownership. That continued in 2020, possibly even further exacerbated by the pandemic. And, you know, that dynamic of imbalance between supply and demand, we expect to continue into next year um, if mortgage rates rise, which is a good bet on that for next year. Um, you know, there might be a little bit of curtailment of demand, but the imbalance is so big that that doesn't turn into house price declines. It's just less house price appreciation. Right, right. It's good that you bring up mortgage rates because that was something I wanted to touch on with you. Um, and, you know, connecting back to CPI, you know, uh, there's this broad uh, assumption that the Fed is going to take action to deal with uh, the the high rate of inflation we're seeing across the economy right now. Um, how does that affect mortgage rates? And, you know, as a result, what could we expect from interest rates next year? Well, sort of the, the connective tissue, if you will, between what the Fed does and the mortgage rate rate world really is sped through the, the long end of the yield curve, the 10-year treasury bond. Generally, mortgage rates are set at some spread or premium above the 10-year yield. 
And that's been historically low. In fact, it went below 1% for the first time, at least of, if, that I've seen in data history um, about a year or two ago. Um, that's why mortgage rates have been so low, 25 3%. In fact, mortgage rates have been at a 3 or 4% level for the last decade. So we've experienced low mortgage rates for a very, very long time in the housing market. Um, if the Fed or when the Fed, I think we can safely say, given the inflation numbers today, when the Fed um, begins to raise rates, that may or may not have any impact on mortgage rates. Um, only if that act of raising rates feeds through into higher yields, particularly on that 10-year treasury. And you know, you and I were talking before we got on here, we were pulling up the, you know, inflation came out at 6.8%, the long, the strongest in 40 years. And yet 10-year yields went down this morning, uh, which would basically mean mortgage rates should be following the trend down at the moment, even though we expect the Fed to raise interest rates because of all this inflation. What's actually probably happening in the next week or two is lower mortgage rates. So it really depends on whether people decide that they're going to reprice the yield higher on the 10-year treasury, which isn't necessarily always going to be the case when the Fed raises rates. And with, with all that in mind, you know, I was talking uh, earlier this week with the folks over at the Mortgage Bankers Association, and they were mentioning that in the past few weeks when, when rates dipped a little bit, um, there was actually a, yet another kind of boomlet in terms of refinancing activity. And obviously, over the past couple of years, refinancing has been huge for the mortgage industry, and millions of Americans have benefited locking in significantly lower rates than they previously had. Um, with all of this, you know, activity, refinancing activity, and I guess also, you know, new home buyers locking in low rates too, you know, what is going to be, is there going to be a long-term effect from that? And will we see people perhaps being, you know, rate locked into their homes so that they might, you know, opt to stay in a home for longer than they might otherwise choose to do so because of the financing right. that they have? So I guess break this into three parts. If you're contemplating refinancing and rates dip, um, we all know the term FOMO, right? <laughs> I think there is an element of fear of missing out. So you rush in, you're like, I got to go grab it. In fact, even when rates sometimes go up a little bit, particularly on the purchase side, we suspect that there is a fear of missing out. The argument there is actually around behavioral economics, and that is we feel the pain of loss more than the joy of gain, even if those sort of, if they're amount is the same or the pain and the, and the gain are the same, we feel it more one-sided. And so when we look and say, if I think house, price, house prices are going to be higher or interest rates are going to be higher in the future, I think to myself, it's going to be more expensive than if I do it now. And I interpret that internally in my brain as a loss. Therefore, I do it now instead of waiting. So there is a shorter term implication when rates begin to rise, particularly on the purchase side, that we might see people rush in to try and you know, not experience that pain, fear of missing out on the low rates because they can clearly see that rates will rise. When it comes to existing homeowners, this is really interesting because as you said, it costs me more to buy my same home back for myself if I've got a 3% mortgage and I go out and I want to say either move and buy another home, I'm going to move my equity with me. But I, even if my income hasn't changed, the cost of the mortgage on the same balance that I have today will be more per month because I'm exposing myself to a higher rate environment. As you said, this is what we call the financial lock-in effect. The last 40 years, we've experienced the exact opposite, long-run trending down in mortgage rates, meaning 
people are turning over because they basically don't have that that pain. When that goes around, we do expect, at least financially, it becomes less rational, shall we say, to make that decision to sell. But I would argue when it comes to housing that luckily for the housing market, um, we are often more like Homer Simpson than we are like Spock. In other words, irrational from an economics perspective. I love that comparison. And I'm sure there's also an extent to which, and this is a common thread from other economists I've talked to about how most people are not moving for financial reasons. They're moving for reasons like having kids, getting married, and those factors will still be around even if uh, mortgage rates go up. Yes, uh, mortgage rates were 18.1% in 1981. People still bought and sold homes. Uh, So uh, there are a lot more issues than just the pure finances. It does become an expense, but as you said, I don't think that changes one's desire for shelter for other reasons. Shifting gears a little bit and, you know, with talk of inflation, rising interest rates, potentially of certainly rising home prices, there are lots of concerns right now about affordability of the affordability of housing in this country. Um, and you all at First American put out a really interesting uh, look at home prices, the real house price index, and it looks at affordability and kind of puts home prices into context. And I was wondering if you could break down that index, what you all look at um and you know capture with that and and explain how you go about calculating home prices from this sort of affordability perspective right the this sort of came from some level of frustration when looking at reported house price indices there's a number of them and they all get reported in nominal terms it's one of the few economic statistics that we don't generally do in real terms um calculated risk bill mcbride he does do a normalization for inflation using the CPI, um, but that is like, wait, but that's not the right inflation measure. And so we sort of look at the nominal prices and say, does it really matter that, you know, house prices have gone up by 19 or 20% um, if my income has gone up or if my purchasing power has gone up? So if you think of it in the simplest sense, starting with the concept of a gallon of milk, if a gallon of milk goes up by 5% and my income goes up by 5%, we all intuitively get the idea that in real or purchasing power terms, I'm no worse or better off. I can buy the same amount of milk. The only difference in the housing market is that, you know, I don't get a loan to buy milk. I do get a loan typically to buy a home. And that loan leverages my income as a function of the interest rate. And so even if my income doesn't change, but interest rates go down, my purchasing power goes up. So we built this index of purchasing power, which was basically of how much can I afford to buy as a function of changes in income and interest rates. And that over the last 20 years has more than tripled. Incomes have gone up about 50% over the last 20 years. But the real benefit of the more than tripling in purchasing power in real estate has obviously been that low rate environment. You do the same analysis as you would with the gallon of milk. If house prices go up by 10%, but my purchasing power for homeowner for buying a home because interest rates have come down also goes up by 10%. Then in fact, in real purchasing power or real HPI terms, RHPI, you're no worse or better off. When we do that analysis over time, we find that right now house prices in real purchasing power adjusted terms are actually less expensive than they were in the year 2000, even though the nominal price is significantly higher because of our purchasing power being so strong. Now, has that changed 
in the last year? Yes, rising rates, fast appreciation of homes at 20% a year clearly cannot be kept up with by our purchasing power. But because we were in such a good place with overall real house prices being low, they're still not even back to where they were 20 years ago. Before I launch into my next question, I just wanted to remind everyone that you can submit your own questions and we are going to take some time towards the end of our discussion to cover those. Um, but, you know, you know, going off of that, you know, do you see when you look at from an affordability purchasing power perspective, where do you see things going in the next year? I mean, we're, we're talking about home prices and mortgage rates likely both increasing, although not a given in the case of mortgage rates. Um, but, you know, I, and there are concerns about uh, income growth, uh, not necessarily keeping pace with other, you know, forms of inflation. So curious your thoughts on, on purchasing power in 2022. Right. So there are three parts to the puzzle, the pace of house price appreciation. We already talked about that at the beginning of the show. You know, clearly expect that to continue to be very strong. Um, incomes are actually benefiting right now from faster growth at the moment than they were historically. Maybe that's partly due to inflation or inflation is partly due to it. We're not quite sure, chicken and an egg problem here, but we do see some benefits from income growth. And as you said, the tail, the clear tail, tailwind will be mortgage rates. And so I expect affordability to erode more going into next year. So if you have a fear of missing out, now is the time. Um, it will only get more expensive or less affordable to buy homes next year because it's likely that the house price appreciation will outpace any increases in buying power or potential decreases in buying power due to rising rates. But it's also important to note that it depends where you are. Um, when we look at the 50 major metropolitan areas in the country, there are only four right now where the median income households purchasing power of the median priced home is um, out of whack to the point where the median price is too high relative to your purchasing power. Those four markets are all in California. All other 46 markets are basically undervalued relative to purchasing power and in some of them by very significant degrees. So even if affordability is eroded, it's not to say that housing has become unaffordable in those markets, if you sort of get that distinction of difference. So shifting gears a little bit, one of the challenges for buyers over the past, you know, year and a half, two years, roughly speaking, um, was the limited supply of homes for sale. And that fueled intense competition uh, once demand started getting really hot, um, especially, you know, after the first few months of the pandemic. Um, from that kind of perspective, from a, a supply perspective, what do you foresee being the case in 2022 for buyers? More of the same. Um, it's a fascinating market at the moment from a couple of perspectives. We look at home sales, over 6 million home sales a year. That's a pretty good number by any stretch. And it's likely that this year we may sell almost as many homes as we did last year. And by the way, last year was the best year for home sales in the last decade. So we are, you know, hot and there's a, there's a lot of sales activity, but then you ask, but, but there's no inventory. This is a sort of a inside baseball data issue here. We measure inventory once a month at the end of the month, but you can think of this as an the analogy of the bathtub being filled with water. And so when I, drop the yardstick in, I'm measuring how much water is sitting in the bathtub. 
But this particular bathtub, the faucet's open and the drain is open. So there's an awful lot of water flowing through the tub over the course of the month. So, you know, the inventory is basically showing up so quickly and being snapped up so quickly that we never even sort of get a chance to count it, if you will. Um, and what's also happening is it's tending to be basically the musical chairs amongst existing homeowners. So they're sort of all selling to each other. And that's the first time home buyer who's being really challenged with trying to find something to buy. And, you know, we use the adage, you can't buy what's not for sale. That is the fundamental challenge for the first time home buyer in the market today that will only be the case also next year. Now that pace of water flowing through the bathtub may slow down, particularly as rates rise and existing homers begin to feel the effects of the financial lock-in that we talked about. Um, but then it will become more important, even if the flow is slowing down, at any point in time, you would want more to choose from. Uh, this gets to the fact that in many markets, it doesn't really matter which one of them I buy. There's you know plenty of iPhone 13s. I don't really care which one. But housing's different. Housing is pretty much what we refer to as a heterogeneous or almost perfectly heterogeneous good, meaning everyone is different. And so it really matters which one I buy. And that even further exacerbates the challenge because when the inventory gets low, not a lot of water in the bathtub, then you have to start to worry about being able to find the right one to buy, even if there are a bunch out there. So it gets you know really sort of illiquid, if you will. And so along those lines, there's been this kind of ongoing discussion, I feel, from economists I've spoken to about, you know, will sellers start coming out of the woodwork a bit more? And, and you already touched on how, you know, the way we capture inventory is a little flawed and that we're not really fully capturing all the homes that are being listed every month. But, you know, I think there is still this general sense that a lot of existing homeowners are staying in homes. I mean, the tenure of, of, of home ownership is longer. People are staying mm -hmm. in homes for longer. So is there anything that's going to grease those wheels that, that will, you know, push sellers to put their homes on the market? I don't see much of anything different that would change sort of current behavior. In fact, if there is one thing, it's actually incenting them to stay in longer, which is the rate effect that we keep talking about. Um, there's a general sense that when people feel wealthier, um, which obviously existing homeowners do today with all the house price appreciation, that they're more likely to move. But we've created this sort of I, the wealth effect concept in housing research amongst economists predicated on a 30 to 40 year environment where rates were also coming down. So we have to ask the question, is it really because, yeah, I feel wealthier and mortgage rates are lower. So of course I can move up to the next house. Um, the more expensive house, the bigger house, the one with an office now that we're all work from home, those sorts of things. I don't know that necessarily the wealth effect is actually there if we say, well, it's not just about feeling more wealthy because all the other homes I would buy have also appreciated by the same amount as mine. So I kind of look at the equity as something I move around with me and my decision about affordability from an existing homeowner's perspective really gets down to those mortgage rates. So no, I think... Uh, people are more likely to stay put going forward, at least from the e economic rational perspective, right. um, than, um, than in years past. Um, that said, there are many other reasons why you would move. Um, and of course, we can rely on new homes being built possibly to provide inventory to potential home buyers in the market. 
So shifting gears to some of the listener and viewer questions we've gotten. Um, one, the first one from Claudette touches on a subject we've already touched on a little bit, which is inflation. She asked, how will rising interest rates uh, in the housing sector affect inflation? So I'm curious if you could break down what relationship there is, if any, between, you know, mortgage rates, I guess, and and housing inflation. So I think Claudette's asking, how do mortgage rates affect inflation rather than how does inflation affect mortgage rates? And we right. can go with that. That's an interesting perspective. Um, inflation, first of all, housing or shelter is the single largest piece of the CPI. I think it's about 40% or something like that. So it's a big chunk, obviously, because a large share of our budget in that basket of inflation goods goes to our shelter component. And it's done in two ways. It's if you're renting, obviously the cost is rent. And as that changes, it's actually been going up quite quickly recently. Um, that would push inflation up. But for existing owners, there's this concept of owner's equivalence rent, which is sort of to ask homeowners, like, what would you pay or what would you be able to charge for rent um, even though you live in the home? So there, it's an interesting thing because, yes, you might be able to charge more rent for your house, but most people have a fixed mortgage. So their actual cost of shelter as a homeowner isn't inflating. It isn't changing um, necessarily. So the we talk about the there's a long lag the owner's equivalent rent uh takes a long time to sort of play through generally speaking it would put upward pressure on inflation but i think truly when we think about it for most homeowners with a 30-year fixed rate mortgage there is no inflation that's why it's called a 30-year fixed rate mortgage my mortgage payment hasn't gone up yes taxes and other things might marginally so maybe technically it's not zero but it's much smaller than the overall inflation rate because we lock in that monthly payment, if you will. Yeah, and then that's a that perfectly encapsulates how you know it's a a bit of a moving target when you're trying to to nail down exactly what inflation is right. in in the housing market. Now, if um, we go the other way, if we yeah, go the other way, right, which is right, exactly. If we go inflation's impact on mortgage rates, then again, from the existing homeowner's perspective, it doesn't change my my rate because I've locked in a, mor a mortgage rate. But for the first time home buyer or that existing homeowner who wants to become a new home buyer, if you expose yourself to that market, yes, rising inflation, if it plays through into rising long run yields and then rising mortgage rates makes things more expensive or less affordable for that potential first time home buyer or existing homeowner who wants to move. So while we're on the subject of mortgage rates, a few people have asked basically the same question, which is, do you have your own forecast for where you see rates going next year? <laughs> By the end of the year, you know, I know Mortgage Bankers Association, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac put out uh, forecasts like that. I'm not sure that you do, but curious your your thoughts, you know, about, you know, how high you expect them to Right. To uh, we do not put out forecasts for uh, mortgage rates. Back when I was in graduate school, my advisor told me you can say how much and you can say when, but you shouldn't say both. When it comes to mortgage rates, I think you stay away from both altogether. Most of us trying to prognosticate on mortgage rates over the last 10 years have pretty consistently said, oh, next year rates will rise. Oh, next year rates will rise. I suppose qualitatively, if we keep saying the same thing, eventually we will be right. I do think though, that the odds of rates rising are much stronger going into next year. I mean, the Fed has pretty much telegraphed it at this point um, than, than in years past. 
um, in terms of the level, the consensus among those who do publish forecasts was around 3.7% uh, prior to a lot of this recent inflation. I suspect they'll probably get revised up closer to four, particularly if the Fed brings forward raising their rates. But we're still st talking about mortgage rates around 4%, which if you have any long historical perspective are still amazingly low. So one question we got from Lee, uh, he asked about, uh, so Barron's, one of the lead articles they ran last weekend, was looking at, you know, the expected growth in home prices um, that they, you know, in the article, they, they said it's likely to continue over the next decade. Um, and, and they pointed to demographic factors. And so Lee was wondering if you have that kind of general consensus too, that, you know, the demographics are supportive for longer term home price growth like that. Yes, the housing market is the penultimate durable good. Um, and so a lot of, and, and our demand comes from households in the United States and the formation of households. And so the underpinnings of a healthy housing market are always the demographics. And as most everyone I'm sure knows, millennials are the largest generation in American history. They also happen to be the most educated generation, which is good for home ownership. Um, and they're aging into their 30s. The oldest millennials are now 40. Just about half of all millennials are now 30 and above. We have another, you know, the other half is in their 20s. And so we've got 10 more years of this big generation of people moving into um, desiring to be homeowners. You know, there was some question a few years ago, it was popularly talked about that millennials will never become homeowners. They were all in their 20s and they were all living in the city and they all loved it. Well, I don't know that that's any different from any prior generation when they were in their 20s. The only distinction of difference that we now see between millennials and Generation X and baby boomers and the silent generation before them is each generation makes a decision for home ownership later in life, millennials being the latest in their early 30s. But to answer the question, because of this, there's still all of this demographic demand. And when you place that against not even considering whether or not existing homeowners will or won't list their homes for sale, simply looking at the stock of houses in the United States relative to the number of households who want to buy, who want to live in houses, let alone buy or rent, um, we've effectively been underbuilding for probably a decade relative to the household formation demand. So when you say all this demand will continue, We've underbuilt the housing stock. It's not rocket science to say, well, lack of supply of overall stock relative to continued growth in demand from all these millennials aging in, you get continued house price appreciation, potentially stronger or above normal levels of house price appreciation for a number of years to come. Now, obviously, re all real estate is local, so we got a number of questions asking about regional trends, and uh -oh. you know, I don't, I can't cover every, we can't cover every state and city. Um, but you know, looking at some broader kind of concepts, um, curious. First off, your thoughts on some some of the secondary markets across the country, because I feel like during COVID there was this trend that a lot of these secondary markets, uh, and even before COVID, this was happening. You know, have boomed in popularity. Um, you know, because of the, you know, overpriced nature, or maybe not overpriced, but the high priced nature of some of these, you know, more pricey major cities, especially along the coasts. So curious your thoughts there on, on what the, the future holds for some of these smaller secondary markets. 
Yeah, like you, I'm probably only an expert in my own market here in Washington, D.C. Um, but what I can say more largely about geography of, of housing is, um, you know, the most expensive markets in the United States in terms of nominal prices and in many cases in terms of true affordability, as I said, the four least affordable or overvalued markets in the U.S. are in California, the coasts, the western coast of California, Oregon, so Portland and Seattle, and then the mid-Atlantic, so Washington on up to Boston. These are expensive markets. Um, there's not a lot of building happening in those markets for a variety of reasons. The secondary or tertiary, I mean, it depends. I think if you live in a secondary market, you might take offense to being considered a secondary market. So let's say other markets out there. Um, you can basically start in the Carolinas and go down to Florida and across the, across the um, I-40 band all the way to Texas and into the Southwest. Lots of building, lower prices, high degrees of affordability. Um, these are the markets where a lot of people are tending to also move to. Um, per particularly now with the pandemic, it's more easy to sort of untether yourself, as we say, from your local office. And so I think all of those dynamics definitely make it good for the long run appreciation of anything from the Carolinas south and across the southwest of the United States. Um, they may not grow necessarily as fast, but the, the dynamics are strong there. So we're sort of spread, if you will, we're sort of demographically spreading out more evenly from being quite so bicoastal. That said, you know, there were plenty of articles during the pandemic about that sort of person who, you know, now they can work from home. They live in Silicon Valley. They give up Silicon Valley. They move to Idaho and they buy a home with San Francisco cash, right? Um, True, it happened, and it created a lot of uh, price pressure in um, those markets that, that people were moving to. We call that sort of a sort of down payment or um, equity arbitrage. You can take all that equity that you've earned in a high price market and move it with you to a lower price market, and you can obviously buy a lot of home with that. But I'll just point out that even though many people did that in the high price markets, they moved out. Places like San Francisco still are on net in migration markets, meaning more people are moving in than moving out. And it's people who are younger, likely renters or starting their careers, millennials just beginning their career. Why would you move to somewhere like proverbially San Francisco? Because that's where the jobs are. Um, and so this concept of migration, I think it depends on where you are in your in life stages, um, because if you're trying to establish a career, it may be still more important for you to be in some of those high price markets where uh, your careers get started and where you have these big agglomerations of, of certain kinds of industries, New York, LA, Washington, San Francisco, places like that. Yeah, when when I've been reporting on the, the remote work uh trend in vis-a-vis -vis real estate that that is exactly what you just touched on that's been a common thread i've heard which is the concern that yes you can have a job that might allow you to move from san francisco to boise um but then what if you want to leave that job there aren't necessarily new jobs in right. boise and then you've also taken yourself out of easy networking opportunities from being local to a lot of the other jobs you might be able to get even if those jobs are also you know remote eligible um, wait, wait, networking opportunities. So you mean we do like being in person with each other? It's surprising. It's surprising, <laughs> right? Yes, yes. Um, it, it's ironic in the commercial real estate space, some of the largest buyers of new leases are in fact technology companies. So I find it right now. So I find it ironic that 
exactly the companies that facilitate our ability to work from home are snapping up office space because they say, yeah, I kind of like my developers actually talking to each other in person in an office to innovate, right? Right, right, right. So I got a, we just got a great question from Carly uh, who asked about um, the supply chain issues when it comes to home building. And mm -hmm. she asked specifically how that's affecting some of the more pricey markets like DC, Boston. Um, but in general, you know, that is a, a common, you know, complaint you hear from the home builders is they don't have the workers or the supplies, building material supplies to be able to build homes as fast as we need to build them to, to kind of narrow that gap that you were talking about before. So I'm curious what you see, where you see that, you know, if you see that changing at all, how that's going to affect home building and, and also, you know, what, what relation that might then have to home prices. Yeah, so there's a long run and a short term effect there that the uh, questioner sort of brings up when it when, with regard to the labor force construction workers. When the pandemic, I'm oh, sorry, not when the pandemic, when the global financial crisis hit about a decade ago, the construction industry sort of went from 60 to zero, right? We significantly curtailed the amount of home building um, that happened and many um, construction workers left the industry. And so it's been a long struggle for home builders over the last decade and likely exacerbated by the pandemic, the, the ability to find construction workers, particularly the skilled laborers. So it's the, it's the specialty trades in building now. So framers, electricians, plumbers, drywallers, things like that. Um, so that's been a longer run issue. The, the new one in the pandemic is clearly the supply chain disruptions for things like windows, appliances, um, some of the parts related to the putting the electrics and the plumbing in. And what we've seen actually in the last six months to a year is the relative number of homes that are started, like they start the construction process, but they don't complete them because they can't, or they choose not to even start building because they know they won't be able to complete them because of these shortages of these input supplies. So there's a growing gap between that which they could bring to market for sale, because ultimately it doesn't really matter to us until the home is completed and you know put on the market. Um, there's a growing gap between the amount that they could build, but that they're holding off market because of these supply disruptions. If we presume that many of these input disruptions with regard to things like appliances and windows are ultimately resolved next year, then we could see a pretty decent surge in completed homes um, relative even to the amount of building because they're all sort of sitting there partially done that they could quickly be brought to market. Would it be relief for the supply? Yes, technically any new home added to the housing stock would be a piece of relief, but you have to consider that there are about 130 million residential households in the United States and about um, 6 million homes sold every year that are existing homeowners, only about 10% of the inventory for sale comes from new. So even if we could grow that 10 to 11, there's still the other 89. Um, so it will take a while for new homes to really add sufficient supply to put a dent in inventory issues. Another 
interesting question we got um, from Richard. He asked actually a couple questions um, looking at affordability from a different perspective, because we usually talk about prices, interest rates. He asked about it from a tax perspective, because obviously mm -hmm. in recent years, there were a number of changes made in terms of the deductibility of mortgage interest and state and local taxes. Um, and so he was wondering what effect that had on, you know, how home prices, housing demand. Um, and I think this is relevant since I feel like this is an ongoing thing that lawmakers have been discussing some revisions to some of those changes uh, with upcoming legislation. So curious your thoughts on, on what, what effect that has had. Right. Uh, you know, the, these uh, tax benefits of home ownership clearly are sort of an incent a tax incentive uh, and a discount, if you will, for homeowners relative to renters that went away. Um, its impact on the markets, you know, there were certainly examples of individuals sort of leaving the high priced uh, markets, the high tax markets, uh, because they were losing that tax benefit and moving to other ones. So out migration from New York to Florida, from the California markets to the Southwest. But we could never find any sort of real statistical writ large data evidence. So not, so not enough people reacted to that. And I think that largely gets to the fact that, yeah, um, if I'm a wealthy person and I that tax benefit is removed, I also still like living where I live. And while I may not like it, I can still afford to stay. So it's not just about, again, like that pure economic financial incentive. There are other things that go into people's decision making. So we didn't see big impacts in, because of these changes in deductibility of, of uh, property taxes and things like that. I think there's the broader question, which is how do we incent home ownership? Because there are lots of benefits to it. And um, we should be careful about how we incent home ownership, certainly in an environment of lack of supply. Because if you stimulate demand more than it's already stimulated by making it more affordable by you know providing tax benefits or reducing the cost of being a homeowner, then you're just, you know, fueling the demand file, fire against a shortage of supply. And effectively, it just will get priced in right away. So you get no real benefit from it. I would also say, setting it aside, you can ask the broader question, is it better to rent versus to own? And when we do that, we have this wonky thing in economics called a user cost. And the user cost of renting is you rent. That's pretty easy. But the user cost of home ownership is What's your rent equivalent? Your mortgage payment, your principal and interest payment. Um, but then you have all these other taxes, fees, and other things associated, you know, maintenance costs associated with owning a home. What we find today is in all the 50 major metros, the same ones we track our RHPI in, that when you take into account rent in that market versus, you know, the user cost of owning the median priced home in that market, every market renting is better. In other words, the rent is less than the overall monthly cost of owning. But the one big difference here is if house prices go up, the landlord gets the benefit if you're a renter, but you get the benefit if you're a homeowner. And with high house price appreciation, effectively right now, the benefit on economics, we call it the negative cost of um, appreciation that accrues to homeowners effectively makes the user cost overall negative. In other words, the home is currently paying you to live in it. And that's regardless of what tax benefit I do or don't have in today's marketplace today.
I think we have time for one last question, um, which is about speculative uh, buying and, and you know, uh, the low rate environment certainly made that attractive perhaps to some, but curious what you, you've seen over the past year. Um, you hear about all these all cash offers happening in certain markets and then what's going to happen into the year ahead because obviously all the speculative buyers com- competing with, uh, you know, folks who want to be, you know, owner occupants of these homes, uh, that, that only adds more fuel to, to this fire. Right. Um, so as measured in the data, we call these investor sales as opposed to owning sales. Um, and we don't see a significant increase, uh, certainly not to the level that we saw in the great housing boom, but then busted. So there doesn't seem to be as much speculation writ large in the housing market today as there was um, in the housing boom and bust. And so, so that's good news there. What I do find interesting though, in that scenario is single family rental investments. They are gaining share. Currently the estimates 2% of the rental market, the rental market in single family is about one third. So 2% of one third, we're talking small numbers. Is it an interesting thing? Yes. Is it a writ large, large market mover? Not yet. Well, nice to, to end on a little bit of good news, uh, hopefully for, for folks tuning in. Um, that's unfortunately all the time we have for today. Thank you, Mark, for being here and and you know providing all this fantastic insight on the state of the housing market and what we can look forward to in 2022. And thank you to the audience for tuning in. Quick plug, I write a column called The Big Move for Market Watch. And we got a lot of questions that were on, you know, very specific personal, you know, dilemmas that a lot of you are facing. So, you know, feel free to send in your questions uh, to the big move. It's the big move at marketwatch.com and we will try to answer them in that column. And also be sure to check out uh, the real house price index from First American that Mark's team puts together. It's a great source of information and really puts these, you know, home price figures into context. And thanks again. So we hope that uh, you will join Barron's Live again on Monday. Barron's Senior Managing Editor, Lauren R. Rublin, and Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, will be speaking with Greg Fisher, Founder and Portfolio Manager of Quint Capital, on the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. So until then, thank you so much again, everyone. Stay well and have a great weekend. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.